Hi, my name is Mattia Murray, and welcome to The Longer Road. You are on The Longer Road if you have multiple intersectional identities that are often marginalized. You've had to work harder to get to the starting line, and you might feel behind. I'm here to provide hope, support, and practical tips, and to let you know that you're not alone. Welcome to the ADHD Flourishing Podcast. My guest today is Nat Smith, who is a vulnerability coach, writer, and also my sibling who is 20 months younger than me. So that's how we know each other. (laughs) We've known each other this whole time. And we had a really interesting conversation recently about autism because, uh, you know, multiple of the siblings have it. And we were having a really interesting conversation that I thought would be really helpful for people to hear. And then I'm also going to ask Nat to introduce themselves and add anything else about how you're thinking about yourself right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is funny. Cause I think since we're both in the coaching worlds, there's a lot of people who know both of us, but don't know that we're related. Like I mentioned it and they're like, what, <laughs> which we do look alike, but our hair is different. So anyway, I am gender fluid. I'm bi. I currently occupy Duwamish land, which is colonially known as Seattle, Washington. That's where Mattia and I largely grew up. And I just moved back here a couple years ago. And we also had some very interesting experiences when we lived together for three years from 2018 to 2021. And yeah, in addition to being a vulnerability coach, I also am a pet sitter. So post a lot of dog and cat pictures and talk about them all the time. Yay. And you also have a master's in theater, right? Is that an MA? MFA in playwriting. Yes. So I spent my 20s in the theater world, got very burned out and worked in startups for a bit. And now I'm kind of getting back into playing with (laughs) expressive arts a little more. I I do some creative nonfiction. I have a selfie project. Oh, yeah, I didn't mention that. Uh, Selfie project. I am going to be doing a 48-hour film project while you're here later this month. So, yeah. Um, that's, that's another side of my creative self. I I mean, our whole childhood was all about the arts. So yeah, if if you weren't going to be a musician, you better do something artistic. Yeah. And also do it at a high professional level with very little support emotionally or financially. Yes, definitely. Like be a starving artist. That's, that's the ideal, which most people people like when I went to college I was like oh other people were told by their parents to go into lucrative fields that can be fucked up but also seems like it could be helpful it at least makes sense I get why people say that yeah (laughs) people don't get it when we talk about how our parents talk about money yeah yeah well and even like I know this isn't why we're here but I think that the the conversation about having done a specific creative or art form super, super intensely getting really burnt out on it. And then that journey to coming back to it. Cause that's also my journey with music. It's another one of our siblings journey with music, you know, getting, and I've, I've never stopped, but I was, you know, I did violin performance and now I rarely practice, right? Like I, <laughs> I don't play violin a lot. And that was sort of my, uh, my big thing for a long time. So anyway, I think there's, there's also something really interesting there with being somebody who has a lot of talents, interests, you know, area, things that you could do that maybe have some overlap and then ending up just like totally burning out on something and setting it aside for a long time like that. Yeah. And like, I, for a long time wished that I had even been cognizant of the option to take time off between high school and college because I had to fight so hard just to go to college at a normal age which you know that struggle uh (laughs) which you know our paths were different with that but we both had very heavy academic pressure to do things young and so for me that meant going from relatively intense but not 
too much pressure high school environment where I took AP classes and I was, you know, toward the top of my class and everything to an extremely competitive liberal arts college that was just so hard. (laughs) Like, you know, and I did not have any mental health support through that. Really, I remember going to a counselor one time mentioned a particular trauma and he was like, well, it sounds like you're over that. So I think we don't need to. And I just, it was bad. It was really bad. And so I didn't get back into counseling again until briefly before grad school. So that would have been a good seven years later. So yeah, my, my experiences going through two degrees with no official ADHD diagnosis, no real understanding of what kind of support I needed, and also just the story from childhood and adolescence that I was lazy and I just needed to push myself harder. Like, that shit did not help, turns out. It was bad. And that's, I think, a part of what I'm very focused on in my coaching now is like, like I just read Devin Price's book, Laziness Does Not Exist. I love it so much. I've shared that article so many times. And now I'm just like, oh my God, I need to shove this book at everyone. We really need to unpack because the the whole academic cog in the machine system that we're raised in is so harmful. And yeah, so I I did get through school and I had a lot of like my self-worth attached to those accomplishments of completing those degrees, even when time off would have been really beneficial and maybe a less intense environment or, you know, uh, professors who respected me (laughs) would have been better places for me. Yeah. Oh, I feel all of that so much, obviously. Uh, and quick context, because I don't think I've mentioned it on this podcast yet. I started college when I was 14 and that's what Nat is referring to the, uh, and it actually wasn't that bad. Like it, I think a lot of people could do stuff like that, especially with the support that I have, the, the particular academic program that I did, which, um, the reason I'm going to be in Seattle in a bit is it's that, that center, which it was, I, it was also technically a longitudinal psych experiment that I was in. Um, <laughs> and they're doing their first reunion since I did this program more than 20 years ago. So I'm coming back and seeing people, but it's, yeah, that set me on a really weird path of just like, cool, I'll just do stuff really fast. And I know this kind of sounds like a non sequitur, but it's, it's not, I, one of my favorite experiences of running this love your brain program has actually been turning people away for whom I can tell it's not a good fit. And I actually just had a call with somebody a couple of days ago where they had applied and I was like, Oh, this could be a good fit. But then when we actually talked, I was like, Hey, my instinct is from what you're saying that the reason you want to do this is because you just want to push yourself really, really hard and like heal really fast. And I was like, yeah, that's a thing you can do, but it's not as interesting to me. It doesn't feel as like aligned with my own values at this point, even though there are techniques that can help people move through things really fast. Like that's what I was raised in was like, do everything as fast as possible, you know, as just as quickly heal as fast as you can and then move past it and pretend that it's not an issue, which is so different than okay, there is something in my body, in my experience, in my memory that is still reacting to something, even if I've quote healed it or worked through it in some Mm -hmm. way. And that is where I think this, I don't know, I, I, my brain is going in so many different directions with this right now, but that's where I feel like my brain really wants to ask people to slow down a bit, even if the slowing down is uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think that the ADHD experience. Um, I I loved your episode about potential, where it was just like this impossible yardstick that you're always being compared to. (laughs) Because like, I was so hard on myself, even at like 12, when I was in the, um, Mattia and I both did this program 
like it, it was in our homeschool co-op and Mattia did, I think, two years of the high school level at a very young age. I did one year of it also at a young age. And for me, the first, like the first paper I wrote for that teacher, she didn't believe that I wrote it myself, which our mom loved bragging about to everyone like, oh, Nat is just such a good writer. <laughs> like the teacher didn't believe they wrote it. And so there was this expectation going into that year, like, oh, you're, you're so good. You're so gifted. Uh, basically like the message that this should be easy for me. And then, you know, the number of times that I, cause we just had school basically once a week for that. Oh my God, we had to write like these reflections on every book of the Bible. <laughs> and it was, it was just excruciating to have to do all these little things. So like, I, I think it was, I'm, we'll, we'll have this conversation later about whether I'm autistic and what that might mean for me. But that part of my brain that picks up on systems, like understood language really well, wrote really well from a young age, corrected other people's grammar, got into the national spelling bee, you know, so like I had this kind of gift with language, but no organizational skills whatsoever, no capacity to uh, create structure for myself. The structure was something we didn't have at home. So like if we wanted it, we had to make it. That did not work for me. So that was a part of why I wanted a more structured environment. You know, I wanted to do, uh, you know, a program like the one you did at the UW or go to public school, which I eventually did do because I just being home 24 seven and having to create my own accountability, like that's still not easy for me. So you can imagine at 12, it was not great. Yeah. And this actually, I think is a great segue into the, uh, are you autistic conversation? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that would be helpful for people to hear. Okay. So there's obviously the ADHD stuff going on and you have an ADHD diagnosis. I don't remember. Nope. Okay. I have a complex PTSD diagnosis and those are functionally very similar, but no, I have not gone through official and, and for various reasons, because I also wasn't planning on doing uh, medication for that when I was younger partly because of your incorrect bipolar diagnosis. So yeah, I, I did not seek that out. I'm sure it would have helped a lot, especially in grad school. And then by the time I finished grad school, I was like, well, I got through grad school without meds. So Classic. maybe I'm just okay. Yeah. So both of our parents have ADHD, um, our dad, like quite severely. And our mom also just like has really classic, you know, her, all of her childhood experiences, you hear them and you're like, Oh, that's a classic ADHD experience. She holds herself together through extremely aggressive physical paper planning systems. Um, that's how she holds her life together. And otherwise she just doesn't remember or do things. Um, she's also a wonderful that she, she's definitely who I learned the doom box from. Uh, do you know this term? It's when you throw things in a box and then never look at it again. Oh yeah. <laughs> I do that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then our dad just like, can't keep it shit together at all. And our dad's also autistic. So, okay. So that's the the background. Most of the siblings at this point have an ADHD diagnosis, um, either like officially or like a, you know, therapist being like, yeah, you probably have that. Um, and what you're describing of the part of you that really, really wanted structure and routine, like for a lot of people, that's the autism part of the ADHD part. It can also just be ADHD. So again, like I'm not saying you are autistic, but one of the biggest things that I think weirdly our family just hasn't really talked about very much is the fact that you just didn't talk for a couple of years as a child. Like you started talking and then you stopped talking complete years. Yes. You stopped talking for like two years and nobody was like, Oh, maybe we should talk to a doctor. It was a really long time. I mean, you talked a it was little bit, but it was months. I mean, I, it was months that you were literally silent, but then you were oh, barely yeah. talked for a long time after that. Yeah. And there was a lot of situations where our parents were trying to get Nat to talk. This was after an illness. But then there were situations and there's video of this, of our parents trying to get you to talk and you refused and you would just point at things. 
So you were, you were sort of like doing gestures and it's like, okay, you are clearly communicating and they know that you're communicating. But again, at no time did anybody take you to a speech pathologist or anything. There's like, oh, that's weird. That one just stopped talking. Right. And the one that's very heartbreaking <laughs> that like this also very much underscores our dad's sense of humor. I have like curls in my hair. Like my mom had done, you know, curlers the night before we were having church that day. And dad's recording me like referencing the curls in my hair, which I'm like pointing to like, you know, he's like, Oh, what's in your hair. And then he starts asking like, well, how do you know there's curls in your hair? Like, can you see them? Maybe there's carrots on your head. Maybe. And he just starts listing other things to try to get me to laugh, to try to get me to respond. And I get this like terrified look on my face and I run off to the bathroom to go check and like look in the mirror <laughs> to make sure there's not carrots on my head. And uh, yeah, so they, they would just, I mean, it was a, a game, I guess, for a while to try to get me to talk. And I remember that like book that I would just read over and over during that time of like kind of cardboard birthday book that I loved. Yeah. So anyway, that's a super classic thing that like, if you were doing autism testing, that's a thing they would ask you about is if you had any, you know, delayed speech, like, and, and it was, you know, not just that you weren't talking very much, but that you just like completely stopped talking for months and months. And then for a solid, yeah. I would say two year period, it was hard to get you to talk very much. So like, yeah, three to five or so, I guess. Yeah. But, Which is again, yeah. sort of a classic like age period. <laughs> right. And until you mentioned that, I just, I never even made that connection of like, oh yeah, but that's yeah. an autistic thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, the CPTSD stuff is, which we all have as well. Like it's tough because it overlaps so many other neurodivergent, you know, quote symptoms or traits and, mm -hmm. and it changes, right? Like the reason CPTSD is considered a neurodivergence is because it chemically, physically changes your brain. You're like different parts of your, you know, you might have a, uh, is it a smaller amygdala, but there's like various things that can happen, um, where various parts of your brain either are larger or smaller or don't communicate with each other as well. And so again, it can be hard to kind of like piece these things apart. But the other part of the conversation we were having is about the, the sort of the current levels of autism. So the three levels that are given in current diagnosis, most people who have, who are speaking like most of the time, right? Even if you have periods where you are not speaking, most autistic people who have a basic level of being able to be okay in a job, a school, a relationship, and who can speak are pretty much considered to be quote high functioning or level one. But <laughs> I saw a really good series of videos um, from a TikToker who is a, an, oh, I want to say Australian psychologist who is also ADHD. And she had some great videos about the levels and talking about how basically a lot of level one people never get diagnosed. And a lot of people who are called level one are actually level two and need a lot of support and care. And I think that's me. Like, I think, I think I really probably should have gotten a level two diagnosis. It's just, for example, I date people who feed me, right? If people don't mm. feed me, it's very easy for me to go a couple days without eating. That is not functional. And like, you know, literally my partner who I live with, I have gained 20 pounds in the last year and a half. And I don't think anybody can tell because it's mostly muscle. And I was like, oh, I guess I've just never eaten enough to put on muscle in my entire life. Like, oh my God. Yeah. And when we were living together, we kind of made it work. <laughs> like I had jobs where I would bring home a lot of food and like that would help or uh, be able to take you out to nice restaurants. And then during the pandemic, since I was unemployed, I had more time. So I'd be like, food, <laughs> that's one of the things. And then like put food in front of you. Because yeah. it's much easier for me to also feed someone else than to just feed myself. Yeah. But yeah, that and then uh, 
some basic like house and cleaning tasks as well. Like there are things that my brain is just like, it's cool. That doesn't need to happen. And if there's nobody else around, like if I, and I've actually never lived alone. I've never fully lived alone. I had my own dorm room for a few months because my roommate didn't show up, but uh, other than that, I've never lived alone. So I've always had other people at least like looking at the fridge and, you know, putting stuff in it basically. And Mm -hmm. I was, anyway, I was just reflecting on how much work my nesting partner does around executive function for the house, for housing costs and paying bills and making sure, you know, things are paid and then literal labor of the food and everything. And I was like, if I lived in supportive housing, this is what would be provided to me. And, you know, I haven't been, I haven't been living with a partner continuously since then, but like I've been living, I I started living with a partner intentionally in 2012 was the first time that I like moved in with someone on purpose and didn't just start dating a roommate, which terrible idea. Um, don't do it. Kids don't do it. Uh, (laughs) We have so many stories about that. So many bad stories, (laughs) but, uh, Anyway, I've just, I've thought a lot about how like my external level that most people would think I'm functioning at is just because people are doing an amount of caretaking for me because I, and it's, I used to think, oh, it's learned helplessness because of trauma. And then I've just, as I've been learning more about autism, I've just been like, oh no, this is like, and, and then also physically that I probably, I don't know if I would still get a POTS diagnosis, but I definitely used to have it. Like I still feel dizzy pretty much every time I stand up. Um, and I used to pass out all the time. Um, and my heart would race like randomly, you know, and I need a lot of lie down time, right? Like I've got a lot of those Mm -hmm. things too. So my body just needs a lot of rest. Well, yeah. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking of our dad who like, yeah, his support is having a wife who does all the things (laughs) like, and we would make a lot of jokes how non-functional he was in terms of not being able to feed himself and not being able to take care of the children and like, haha, that's so funny. Like, and a lot of that I think got ascribed to the gender thing of like, well, he's a man and he just doesn't have those skills and they don't come to him naturally. And yeah, he forgot to feed that hamster when we were babies. So that's why we never had another pet. I think it's really easy for those things to be chalked up to something else. Yeah, if if you believe that like this is just how men naturally are, then then you don't have to consider okay, but what else is going on here and why is it this much of a challenge to even like remember to defrost something or put food in the mouths of your seven children (laughs) which he basically did not do he basically just didn't feed us like every once in a while but yeah like and i mean he would take us to 7-eleven for like slurpees and hand pies um (laughs) (laughs) like well i think sugar is the solution sugar will fix all this yep ah so for yourself like one of the things uh we were talking about too is And I've seen a lot of autistic people say something along these lines that um, being a highly sensitive person or HSP is basically autism for white women, Um, like especially older white women who don't, you know, who have like big hangups around being autistic and would never would want to claim that label, but they're totally fine with HSP, even though it's basically just a list of like sensory issues and needing a lot of space and having challenges with relationships. (laughs) So it's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember coming across that when I was younger and like, uh, you know, stuff about that stuff about introversion was always very validating to me. Cause I mean, I am the quietest one out of the seven of us. Yeah. Like I'd be so embarrassed of y'all in public. (laughs) And I know I was not the only one who was ever embarrassed of our family, but it was like, excruciating to me as a kid to be like all of these loud people are around me and it's so much all the time so yeah I mean I I had various frameworks I think to help me understand myself 
And definitely when you were starting, because we were living together when you were figuring out your autism and getting your diagnosis and moving away from the incorrect diagnosis. And that was, you know, very fascinating for me to see that transition for you. And also, as you were talking about the things about yourself, like, oh, you know, you don't really read facial expressions on TV, like you're just not really interested in the faces. A a lot of the things you've had to teach yourself, like I was just constantly comparing like, well, I'm not like that. And like, I also, I can help translate social cues for you. And I've done that for other people in the past. And so I was just more focused on the autistic traits I don't have, or that are like on a different part of the scale for me. And with our family being as autistic as it is, I think like I'm just very well versed in both sides of like the kind of neurodivergent and then more of the neurotypical expectations and whatever level of masking I did, I think was often much easier for me. Yeah, I think that that whole experience kind of did not lead me to question whether I was autistic and instead it just helped me understand you better and other people better. And then the more I've been learning from you, from other people, being like, well, I read this thing in a book about autism and it seemed really wrong. And you were like, yeah, that's really wrong. (laughs) Like all of that has helped me start to be like, well, okay, so I'm somewhere on this spectrum, but it's tricky because it's being treated as a disorder by the DSM. And I don't really see any problems for me around this. You know, of course, I don't want to take up space in a community that I don't necessarily belong to or use a label that I'm not sure about. But one thing that I think was a turning point for me was this past fall, I was involved in a theater devising process. We were creating a play together. It ended up never getting produced (laughs) for various reasons. Being in the room, that was my first time just spending space in a completely neurodivergent room full of people. More than 80%, I think, had autism diagnoses and a few more self-diagnosed. And I was just like, oh my God, this is an amazing space where I can stim, I can be on the floor, I can like do whatever I want and not worry about how people are going to see that or whether I'm going to be judged for it. Like, including we had somebody in the room who is non-speaking. She's not non-verbal, but she communicates through touch and text and things. And it was like really getting to understand a broad spectrum of autistic experiences and seeing how easily and comfortably I fit into that. And I was like, well, I don't think it'd be wrong to say that I'm autistic. I don't, I am an agnostic on this. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, the, another thing that I was thinking about with your experience, uh, if you had come at this from a different angle, like if you did not have autistic family members, but you had all of the exact same experiences. One thing I see a lot is ADHD people who are like, oh, I'm just in this little group of ADHD over here. And then they describe autism basically. So there's a lot of ADHD people who are like, oh no, I just have this little set of ADHD traits over here that some ADHD people have. And it's like, yes, it's autism. That's what that is. (laughs) That's what you're describing. Um, And that, that I could totally see that, you know, making sense for your experience. If you're like, oh yeah, well, obviously I have ADHD and, you know, Therefore I I have, you know, less neural pruning and I like stimming and, you know, like stimming is helpful for the motor areas of my brain to help my entire Mm -hmm. brain regulate, right? Like these things are true for ADHD people as well. But that particular thing of like, I'm in a group of autistic people and I feel more comfortable than any other type of space. Like that's a very particular autistic experience. And it's also very common for autistic people to not feel comfortable even self-diagnosing until they are a hundred percent sure. And that's where that black and white thinking shows up. Right. Is like, yeah, if there's even one autistic trait that I don't have, I couldn't possibly be autistic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also in a trans and non-binary choir, which as you can imagine, (laughs) is a very autistic group of people. And yeah, I I really love 
being able to seek out those environments. And also having seen you and other family members and other people I know advocate for yourselves in like, this is what I need. That has been really helpful for me in starting to set my own parameters and getting clear on, okay, if there's an environment where people are being shamed for using their phones or like, or asked to not use phones in a way that doesn't really affect the group, I'm like, okay, actually, this is an accessibility thing for me. This helps me regulate because that's often something I need. And, you know, as long as I've had a smartphone, which has been more than a decade now, if I'm in a group of people, the phone is the thing that I'm like, okay, I can just go to this. I can zone out, regulate, you know, do something pattern related, like that one of the games that we're obsessed with. And that's often just as helpful to me as actually leaving the room. And it's usually more socially accepted because it's something where people are less likely to be like, oh my gosh, are you okay? What's wrong? Versus if I'm like, okay, I need to go like self-regulate for a bit. And then you get like all of the extra concern and I've figured out how to take care of myself and, and then start to set boundaries around that in ways that are like, this is who I am. This is what I need. This is, you know, accessibility stuff and, uh, and then help other people start to think about that, you know, facilitators and leaders, um, because often they have this vision of how the group should be working and should be interacting. And as a vulnerability coach, a lot of the work I do is based in these, you know, human to human connection and like, I'm thinking of a cuddling event I went to recently where I went to the solo couch and pulled out my phone and the facilitator came over and asked me to get off my phone. And I was like, well, this is kind of the best thing for me to do without needing to leave the room. And so we had a little conversation and just like, yeah, I I want these facilitators, including me, to be thinking about accessibility in the space and what that means across a broad spectrum of needs. Um, you know, the phone is just one small example, but basically a lot of the time when neurotypical behavior is expected, and that's kind of the goal, then a lot of individual needs and desires get left out of that. Yeah. And when we are accustomed to not having our needs met in spaces, our expectations for how we're going to feel and then sort of our evaluation after the fact is so skewed because if I'm just used to being overwhelmed and miserable in a social space, unless I'm drinking, which I would say was my experience of most of my twenties. And I didn't drink a ton in my twenties because I was really worried about uh, addiction, but I, I needed a drink in a lot of settings to like feel okay. Cause it's a nervous system depressant and looking back at that, just really long period of experiences. My thought about, did I have a good time is radically different than how I define having a good time now. Mm, yeah. Because I was just so used to being miserable and so used to my needs not being met. I didn't even really know what that looked like because it was so rare for anybody to actually meet my needs in a space. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I've been thinking this week of a really good example of that, that we grew up with, that I had not really made the connection with. So in our household, it was very normal to scare people, just like jump out of somewhere, the bushes, whatever, like scaring each other was a skill. It was something we prided ourselves on, really enjoyed. And, um, there are definitely instances where that was all in good fun and fine and nobody was hurt. There's definitely instances where it was incredibly dysregulating and awful and it was still just the norm. It was like what was expected. So I go off to college and just like was this absolute asshole who would scare anyone, <laughs> like hide in my boyfriend's closet and jump out or even after college, uh, 
uh, I was engaged in my early 20s, I had a partner who would collapse from fright when I scared him, like, you know, the fainting goat thing, like his legs would just give out. And I had had people tell me like, you know, this isn't funny, this isn't okay. And so specific people I had stopped scaring. But then I kind of learned, oh, this is not socially acceptable behavior in general. And there's things like that that were just so normal in our household that it took me a very long time to learn it was not socially acceptable elsewhere. Looking back, I'm like, well, I guess it made sense that it seemed fine to me because I was so used to being dysregulated and not having control over my body and my system that then it just, it was just this reciprocal thing. You know, we scare each other and like, that's a part of the relationship and that's okay. Or like pushing a partner out of bed because it's funny. <laughs> like, I mean, it's so cringe, cringeworthy looking back a decade later, but that, that was so baked into my experience and a part of all these funny stories that we would tell that I just had no idea that it actually didn't feel very good. And it wasn't really a choice that I had like willingly and thoughtfully bought into. Oh, and that's such a huge rabbit hole too. The like the idea of choice and intentionality and doing what actually feels good. And that has been such a huge part of my autistic discovery awakening experience has just been, oh, I don't have to feel like miserable piece of shit all the time. I can actually feel regulated and content and good. I was going to say happy, but I don't even know that that's the right word, but I can just, I can feel okay. Most of the time, I just need a lot of support and a very intentionally chosen space and set of activities for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And it is actually mm -hmm. possible for me to build that life and do that. And that's been my you know journey the last handful of years. And I think, I mean, I, I know that I was the first one in our family to really start looking at and talking about autism. And that I think has been really helpful for multiple siblings to so just be like, oh, you're allowed to like make choices about your comfort. Like we were talking about maybe trying to do a full sibling get together, which again, seven relatively loud people uh, <laughs> all together. And a couple siblings were just like, Hey, you know what? I'm actually not up for everybody right now. Like it's too dysregulating for me. And we're all just like, yeah, that makes sense. We all get it. We all have experienced extreme dysregulation yeah. and we're all in our own trauma healing journey. So I assume that people being able to do that is going to make it easier when we do come together. Cause then people have set their boundaries. Right. And with that, you know, there are childhood patterns and things that come up when we're all together as a group. We, we learned a very specific subset of social norms <laughs> with each other to a level that I think most households never have because they don't spend that much time together. Like I mean, I guess, you know, you left the house when the youngest was pretty young. So it's not like we spent endless years, all seven of us in the same household, but it was certainly, you know, a, a, a certain set of norms were established by our parents. And then we all spent many years in that set of norms without a lot of outside influence because none of us went to public school or, you know, left the house significantly until high school. Yeah, we've kind of figured out, all right, how do we interact with the rest of the world? How do we interact with each other? And and we've re-regulated, reconfigured our systems for other uh, environments. But when we're all together, it's a lot. And we've had we've had partners of siblings also get upset with like, uh, like I think I had a partner, and I'm I'm sure some other siblings have who did not like the overlapping talking that we would all just jump into a conversation because, you know, if you don't jump, jump in, it never gets said. And I think not all of us, but several of us do have the sort of multi-track processing availability. So like we can semi-track a couple of different conversations at once and maybe even hear and process two different things at once. 
not always, but you know, so it's that kind of thing that it's like, that is a lot for some people. And when, when you're starting to kind of get off of the hyperstimulation train and learn other levels and other environments that your body might be comfortable in, then going back into that setting where we have shaped a very particular way of being with each other, like it takes time to unlearn that. <laughs> like similar to how we're unlearning sibling roles that we had as, you know, you and I being the oldest and often being put into, or just, you know, having no choice, but to be in a parental role for the younger siblings, you also being a parental figure for me as well. Like that's stuff that we've continued to work through as adults. So like, yeah, there's just, there's so many layers there. And I think when we're getting our own shit together and we just want to like share it with the world and share it with our family and just like, wow, isn't this so great? It's hard to recognize that like, oh, these systems that were laid down the earliest in our lives, they're going to kind of be the last to unfold. And uh, yeah, we just have to make space for that. Yeah, that's really well said. So I imagine that for you, based on what we've talked about, I know we didn't go super deep into the, what the autism levels are, but you can look those up. They are level one, two, and three, and they have sort of different (laughs) diagnostic criteria, but I'm really taken by this idea that a lot of level one folks are just not getting diagnosed and that's okay. Uh, But I also think it's really cool for people like you to be able to, if you want to, at some point, use the label autistic because it shows how wide the range of experiences Mm -hmm. are. Like that's Mm -hmm. what I'm interested in, in more people realizing that they're autistic. It's not because I really care whether they personally do anything with it. And in your case, you don't really, you don't necessarily need, you're not really looking for accommodations necessarily. It's more that you just experience the world differently than a lot of people. Your brain, you know, works differently than a lot of people's and you navigate that relatively easily. So for me, the point isn't, oh my God, you need help and support like I did, like where I was like, I cannot function on a day-to-day level without help. But I think it's really cool for more people to be out basically, (laughs) rather like queerness. Yeah. Well, and I was, I had a thought earlier when the (laughs) high functioning label (laughs) came up, uh, you know, because obviously, and it's that. I still hear a lot of people who prefer the term Asperger's, even though that's not really accepted anymore. Asperger was a Nazi. Uh, It's not a separate diagnosis anymore. It's considered like what that was defining is now just considered a part of autism spectrum disorder. And I think a lot of people like that term because they still want to hold themselves separate from all of the potential stigma of the word autism. And so, yeah, I I think that totally makes sense to like, for me to find a level of comfort with it where it's like, okay, I'm, I don't have to be claiming I'm anything I'm not by describing this part of my experience because yeah, it's, it's such a big bucket. It's such a, like, there's so many of us who fit in this in one way or another, or a bunch of ways. And that's really important. It's kind of similar to, you know, you came out as genderqueer, and I came out as gender fluid a couple years later. And in some of the conversations we were having about it, I was like, well, like, should I really be, you know, claiming that I'm non-binary or later uh, that like that I'm under the trans umbrella, like all of these things, I felt very conflicted because I was like, I do present as femme a lot. I don't have a lot of gender dysphoria up, up to this point, have not chosen any medical transition. And so I was very hesitant, but the conversations we were having helped make it super clear, like, oh, the more I share my experience the more that helps other people understand people whose experience is more trans than I am, you know, so. Or or more visibly trans. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 
which is also very much um, my nesting partner's experience is like they're non-binary and, and probably eight. I mean, I'm a gender and they're probably also a gender. So that's, those are a couple words that define both of us, but I've done a good amount of medical transition and they're at the moment, not, you know, they're not interested in it or considering it. They're just like, I just don't care. And so mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of, and, and they're also on the spectrum, right. But they're very high masking. And that was actually something that helped me, uh, approach the conversation with you because I think you and Ryan have a lot of overlapping things where you're both high masking in particular ways or have like learned systems. Oh, that's another thing for autistic people. It's like, no, I don't have a problem with this thing. I have a whole system. And it's like, yeah, the system is the autism. Like that's <laughs> if you had to develop a system to to handle the Oh my the God, thing. I love systems. <laughs> systems are great. Yeah. I love organizing other people's shit. <laughs> Yeah. And the three of us lived together for a while too. So, but it was just interesting because the two of you, I was looking at both of you and I was like, yeah, you're both neurodivergent, but like, I don't, I don't, I didn't think either of you was autistic when I was going through kind of the original process. But then as I Mm -hmm. talked to both of you more, both of you have these very overlapping experiences where you learned all the things that you're supposed to do. And Mm -hmm. it causes you a good amount of stress that then makes a lot of social things And especially like relationship things really stressful because you're, and I'm not saying you're the same in this regard, but like that you both Mm -hmm. have certain things where you tend to like give a lot and do a lot for people and then be mad afterwards. And I was just looking at that and I was like, yeah, Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. both of you, this looks like more of a masking thing than a thing that you, it doesn't seem like you really want to be doing all of these behaviors in this way. Yes. And also Okay, I have a couple more things I want to touch on before we close because I know we're coming close to time. One is that I was always like, well, I don't take things literally. I know what they're trying to say. (laughs) I just think it's ridiculous that they're not saying it. (laughs) And like, so I would get really annoyed with all of all of that just like oh come on like I know what you're trying to say. Why don't you just say it? Euphemisms are stupid. all of that and and now i notice when i'm like oh okay so my brain does process this in a completely literal way and then i translate it and i'm like well why did i have to why did you make me do that work that's just irritating and then the other thing um so i had had a mutual friend and also client uh, she's worked with both of us reach out recently and asked me if I was autistic. And she was kind of like, I don't don't know if this is okay to ask. And I was like, you know, I have that same thing where I, I've had a couple people ask me if my partner was autistic. I was like, well, I haven't brought it up with him. I don't know if that's okay to ask. And so it just recently we were hanging out. I was like, so do do you think of yourself as neurodivergent? Because definitely everybody who meets him uh, of my friends has assumed that he's neurodivergent. He was like, well, you know, I've never been diagnosed with anything. Like I don't really have any particular issues that seem to, and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. And he was like, why do I give off that vibe? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and I think that's another area where we can start to normalize it. Like I, I'm guessing there are people who would be offended if you ask them if they're autistic in general, if, if you would be offended, if somebody asked you that question, that's something to look at because that is some ableism there. And that means that the the stigma that you attach to autism is something that you want to other it from yourself. Like you, you want to be separate from the idea of that. It's kind of like, you know, you can be progressive, but as soon as somebody asks like, well, are you a part of this group or, you know, do you identify this way? then all of a sudden it's like, well, whoa, whoa, I'm, <laughs> I'm normal. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? And also sometimes just neurodivergent as an overarching label is more comfortable and fine. And so maybe that's a better way into the conversation to just, well, you know, how do you relate to neurodivergence and neurotypical stuff? And like, yeah, just op- open more conversations about it. And definitely now that you have another podcast that I can recommend to all of my friends. I will be disseminating it far and wide because I think what you're doing with this is so good and so important. And like, you know, no wonder you're getting these viral TikToks and things because people are like, ah, yes, somebody's seeing me, somebody's hearing me. 
Yeah. I actually, I got a message from somebody for, I was a guest on the Thoughty Audi podcast and somebody messaged me to say they have never felt more seen and heard than me talking about Aww. ADHD on that podcast because they were listening to it yeah. as an autistic person. Right. And then hearing the ADHD specific thing, they were like, oh, fuck, that's me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is, again, I think what's happening with a lot of people, a lot of autistic people realizing, oh, this little thing over in the corner might be ADHD and vice versa. Right. Well, and all of these things, there's these like arbitrary distinctions between them being made by a bunch of, I mean, historically the DSM has been put together by a bunch of like white Eurocentric men who like part of how they're making those determinations is like, well, what isn't like me and what's weird and not okay. Yeah. It's, it's been very helpful to learn about all of these different things. And like one of the reasons misdiagnoses happen is because there is so much overlap and there's like, is this whole world of different ways that brains work. There's billions of us on the planet so we can find patterns and we can find connections and like also it's not necessarily a real distinction between certain things and some of the distinctions are helpful because then we can get care to people in the way they need it and some of the distinctions are not that helpful the more i learn about the connections between complex ptsd and adhd i'm like look anybody who has one really should be understanding the other because the the way you function is so similar, even if the brain chemistry and brain architecture are not necessarily the same. Or if they were caused by something else. So I do want to wrap up for time. What is the best way for people to find you online if they want to connect with you? I am the most active on Facebook. I do try on other platforms, but I go through phases. So Nat Oleander Smith on Facebook, and then I have a Substack newsletter. So that's natsmith.substack.com. And that is a pretty good hub for all my shit. So we can put those links in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I guess I didn't really talk much about my work today, but it's definitely relevant. Uh, It's definitely accessible and inclusive. And that's been very important to me getting into vulnerability work and working with feelings and emotions and connection, because those are different for some of us than for others. And we might not have the expectation or desire to have a relationship that looks or feels neurotypical. Yeah. Very cool. That's what I do. Awesome. We'll put those links in the show notes and thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you. We have a billion different topics we can touch on like so many other spin-offs that I wanted to go into. Yes. So. All right. Yay. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you know someone who would be helped by this podcast, please share it with them. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions at Mattia at MattiaMarie.com. That's M-A-T-T-I-A at M-A-T-T-I-A-M-A-U-R-E-E dot com. Thank you.